This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Party Down, Parties On edition. It's Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. On today's show, Party Down, the short lived but much beloved show from, I'm going to say, about a decade ago, is back. The sitcom about a Hollywood catering company returns. Adam Scott, Ken Marino, Jane Lynch, many of the uh, other original cast members. And it's on stars, uh, exclamation point. And then the very, very indie film, very small budget indie film, two Leslie stars, Andrea Risebros, a Texas woman down on her luck after having won the lottery 10 or so years ago. The harrowing depiction of her journey into the darkest heart of alcoholism has earned Riseboro Best Actress nod. Uh, remarkable for a tiny budgeted movie, but this is also making headlines, uh, etc. because there's a controversy behind that nomination. We will discuss it. And finally, Slate and NPR have teamed up on the new black film canon, a list that has been expanded from 50 titles seven years ago to 75 now. To walk us through it, say why a new list was urgently necessary, will be joined by a very good, very old friend of this program, Aisha Harris. But first, joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia, hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. You ready to discuss culture? Always. Yeah, good. And we're joined by Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slade and Dana. We're allowed to like plump for your book all over again, right? It's out in paperback. Yes, it so happens that today, February 28th, the day we're recording, is the U.S. paperback release date of Cameraman, my book about Buster Keaton. So if you have been thinking about getting it, but for some reason you prefer reading in paperback, it is cheaper, it is lighter, etc., you can now get it that in that form. Mm, cheaper, lighter, Dana Stevens. I love it. If you haven't bought it yet, Festers, run out and get it. All right, shall we make a show? Let's do it. Okay, well, the TV show Party Down, it was a sitcom. It was on the Stars Network. It had... Everything from all appearances were going for this show. It had an amazing cast. The writing and the production talent was all just A quality. Um, And I think almost above all, arguably, it had a great premise. Uh, A Hollywood catering company made up of aspirers and also rands are forced to service the super successful culturati of L.A. Great sitcom, right? What's not to love? Canceled after losing out badly in the ratings, uh, and also losing some of its talents to, for example, Parks and Rec. Well, it's back. There's a season three reboot. I have to admit, I missed it the first time around. Digging it this time, it returns Adam Scott, Ken Marino, Jane Lynch, many others from the original show, a lot of the original 
Writers and producers, in the clip we're about to hear, the uh, the gang is celebrating, if that's the right word, the release of a movie called Nitromancer, starring their old co-worker, Kyle. Here they are. They're all gathering for a group photo. Let's listen. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, get the old team leader. You know, get the whole gang. Yeah, but were you in the gang? Weren't we the gang and you were more management? No, I was in the gang. I just got to say, this is really inspiring. Like, you all used to work at Party Down, and now... Yeah, I mean, I was you 10 years ago, man. Now I'm Nitromancer. <laughs> I mean, Lydia's a manager. Oh. Her daughter's breaking in in a big way. Escapade Dunfries, starring in Spring Broken, March 6th, everywhere. Yeah! <laughs> and I'm an actress slash playwright. I'm also a widow. Slash heiress, patron and donor of the arts, helping make dreams come true. And my dream is to be a waiter forever, so that's inspiring as well. You know what else is inspiring? <laughs> Guess who's going to become a holder? All right, I have to confess, I think this is just hit my the blind spot on my radar. I missed this the first time around. Julia, this this sounds like it was kind of your up your alley. Uh, did you watch the original show? How psyched are you that it's back, and uh, how good a job have they done returning it? Three important questions. I did watch the original show, but not at the time. I caught up with it, I think, during the pandemic. Um, I feel a vague distaste for the reboot revamp generally. Like when I hear something I love is being rebooted, uh, I find that concerning rather than exciting for the most part. But this is a slight exception to that because this is one of those shows that was like cut off at the knees before it had a chance to do everything it could potentially do. Like it had two fantastic seasons with hardly a false note and then was just cut down by the economics of Hollywood, which ironically is like exactly what it's about. So it seemed more potentially ripe for a reboot than some other shows. And also it's not that old either. So it, so the notion of revisiting these characters 10 to 15 years later, um, given the themes of the series, which is like, what is success? And what do you make of your life? And how do you use your talents? And how do you end up feeling about all of that? Like, it seemed to set up for a better uh, reboot, revamp, revival than than perhaps some other shows and concepts. Um, and how did they do? I enjoyed every minute. The episodes absolutely work. The ensemble is as funny as ever. Um, the thing I've always loved about this show is the sure-footedness of the tone. Like you are just in a very specific and confident worldview that creates this comedy. And that's part of the pleasure of it is that you can like relax and enjoy the the wry darkness of that worldview. Um, But, you know, there's a couple big changes in the revival. One is that the, you know, uh, tortured love interest of uh, Henry, the Adam Scott character, who was played in the original by Lizzie Kaplan, her name is Casey, uh, couldn't make or didn't make at least the first five episodes of this um, revival. And so she's sort of expositioned off in the first season and then like, bloop, up pops Jennifer Garner, improbably as a successful Hollywood person who suddenly randomly strikes up a friendship with a um, this rando at a party and and becomes a, a, a kind of burbling partner, potential tension haver for um, the episodes I watched. And that struck a particular chord for me as a big fan of Alias. I love Jennifer Garner. What fun to see her in this universe. But tonally, um, tonally she seems a little 
disposable. Like we need a cute brunette for him to swap exchanges with. Otherwise, the show, the souffle of the show doesn't rise. But she seems sort of like a dial-up brunette. I don't know. I, it, she does not seem as grounded as the other characters. Um, and a, a, as much as I love her, like I'm, I'm probably one of her biggest fans culturally. But uh, I wasn't sure that element of it worked as well as I wished. What did you guys make of it? Yeah, Julia, I would tend to agree. It seems like the reception of this show is a little mixed. This is clearly a, a sadder world than the world of 20 years ago, Party Down, if only because, you know, all of these show business strivers have, for the most part, not gone anywhere in show business. And in the case of, of Henry, the Adam Scott character, have given up on even trying and have just pursued other professional goals. Um, but to me, that seems very in keeping. I would not want a reboot that felt exactly the same Otherwise, you know, it, it just seems like purely tapping into nostalgia for a beloved show. Um, as for my own history with the show, like you, Julia, I discovered it later. I believe that I discovered it for the first time on a plane, which is always a way, it's such a such a bottled up way of seeing something that it tends to make you either fall in love with it or hate it. And in the case of Party Down, I think I watched the first part of the first season on a plane and then immediately had to go home and binge all the rest of it. I would maybe agree that this feels a little bit less uh, energetic than the show of 20 years ago. And yeah, I think that sadness really suits the show. It's a total crackerjack cast. Everyone is so brilliant. Ken Marino, as the head of the, the catering company, is just <laughs> such a king. And he does something that there's far, far too little of in, in TV and movies right now, and which is obviously dear to my heart, which is physical comedy. He is a great, great pratfaller. And I was making a tally, and I think I got to five. I got to cross out my little tally <laughs> bars of how many times I laughed out loud at Ken Marino doing some form of physical comedy or another, whether it's, you know, spilling food on trays, falling down. It's just he's so good at timing his absurd, goofy pratfalls that um, he just had me on the floor. Oh, my God. I loved it. And let me just say that I took a journey to my love. So let me describe it lugubriously, which is I the great benefit of not having seen the original, which I'm now going to go back and binge, is there was no possible sense of disappointment. It was all discovery. So in one sense, the journey to my love was quite easy and direct. It's just incredibly funny. What a cast. The setup is so good. Um, it nonetheless had to overcome this resistance I have as a like Larry Sanders snob who 30 years ago, you know, kind of this HBO show that was, I mean, it became huge, but sort of wasn't at first. And it was really dark and scabrous. Like Larry Sanders, because Shandling, you know, starred as Sanders and his sensibility saturated. It was just a kind of scabrous, unrelentingly dark look at the underbelly of Hollywood, but also just the sheer craving of the egos of the people who want to be in it or you know, conquer within it. And it's served as the basis for so much material since. I think its writers went on to produce and create so much content that was in the same vein. You know, it is a challenge 30 years later to do something new with it. But I think Party Down nails it for the following reason. It is so shrewd about Americans' relationship to success, which is that for the time that you crave it and don't have it, it's all luck, a matter of luck. And the very second you get it, it's destiny. I do think tonally that's one of the things that's interesting, though, because it's a show that's so gimlet-eyed about the lies we tell ourselves about success 
like exactly mm. that from from outside of it you assume it's random from inside of it you assume you've earned it um and yet the actual emotional arcs of the first two seasons sorry to spoil steve you've lost your right it's been 13 years involve um henry like the arc of it is that he's so shut down and he's given up and giving up offers safety, right? Like mm-hmm. not yearning for success offers emotional safety. And part of the arc of the show is him reconnecting with his ambition, with desire to to perform his art, to use his gift. You know, he is apparently a talented actor. Um, and, you know, we land the show on him deciding to try again. And so there's a, there's mm. there's something odd about kind of returning to it here. Like there's something at odds with, I can't, well, I keep using the word mordant around the show, <laughs> the mordant wisdom of the show, which is like, you don't, you can want success and you also don't need success. Like, I don't know, your life is more than your stature and your status. And um, it's a, it, the, the, the conceit that they have to pull to get him back in the, back in the catering company and back on the outskirts of Hollywood and back wondering about the career he didn't have. Like it all feels slightly dimmer than the show actually is about human existence somehow. Like that, that mm. I think that's part of part of what about the third season feels slightly off or makes it feel like a guilty pleasure. Cause I enjoyed, I just enjoyed it so much. Like every single episode is fun. I can't wait to finish them, but but it feels like a slight betrayal of the show's actual worldview because I feel like the true belief of the show is actually that Henry would have been happy married to someone else and an English teacher, you know, that like he could Mm. have been happy. He did, he just, just because deciding to try was the right emotional arc when he was 20 doesn't mean that like where he ends up in this season feels quite as true, as fun as it is. I have to say that we still have, I think all of us still have one more episode to go until the end of this first season because they only released five to us. And I think that there's an interesting tonal, there's something that's in between, you know, um, this wistfulness and hopefulness in the at the end of, of episode five that makes me think that episode six could break either way, hopeful or not. All right. Well, the show's party down. It's on stars. It is a reboot. We generally, we kind of loved it. Check it out. Let us know what you think, maybe especially in relation to the first, if you if you loved that one. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. I'm sure we have some. Dana, what do we got? 
Stephen, our only item of business is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to be talking about someone we talked about pretty recently, Roald Dahl. We recently talked about the new uh, Netflix production of Matilda and the representation of the character of Trunchbull. Uh, We're going to talk a little more about Roald Dahl because he's come up in the news. For those who aren't familiar with this story, Roald Dahl's publisher, which is Penguin Random House, recently announced that they're going to be updating some of his classic books to make them more acceptable to modern readers. So the plan is to get rid of language that's racist or sexist or fat phobic in books like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, and many others. There's been a lot of backlash to this online from all sides of the spectrum to the point where Penguin now says that the original versions will still be kept available. We're going to dig into this story, which is about a lot, a lot of things, including uh, literary censorship, share our own views, and hopefully provide some useful context, including the fact that Roald Dahl's family has been involved in these new revisions. If you are a member of Slate Plus, stick around for that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a member of Slate Plus, guess what? You can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you get ad-free podcasts, you'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, which lots of other shows feature as well, and of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. When you're a Slate Plus member, you will never hit a paywall, and you'll also be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Well, the movie To Leslie is a micro-budgeted movie. It's a real flashback to the heyday of Sundance, a kind of naturalistic, social realist drama filmed in a very intimate style. It stars Andrea Riseborough. And I think one of the reasons we're talking about the movie is she was a surprise nominee for Best Actress and is a kind of remarkable dark horse candidate. Anyway, Leslie, who she plays, is a Texas single mom who won about $200,000 in the lottery about seven years ago, only to not only totally squander it, but in effect, it helped ruin her life. And thanks to her hard partying, hard living ways, she has alienated all her loved ones uh, when the movie opens. Now it's uh, seven years later, she's hit rock bottom, And what follows is a harrowing journey into the depths of her loneliness and self-sabotage that may or may not come to an end thanks to the good graces of a motel manager played by Mark Maron, none other than, uh, who throws her a lifeline. Uh, Film stars Riseborough and Maron. It's directed by Michael Morris. Uh, It also stars Alison Janney. It's just another amazing villainous turn from Alison Janney, Andre Royo, various others. Uh, In the clip we're about to hear... Leslie is, uh, she's now staying with her son and uh, ostensibly to get back on her feet, but her drinking quickly gets in the way, well, of everything again. Let's, let's have a listen. Where you been? Well, you're home early. I've been all over town looking for you. I was here, baby, watching TV. Mom. I was here and I went for a walk because I've been cooped up in here. So, I went looking for a job. A job? Yeah. Get my plan, you know, figure out my plan. Hey, what's wrong? Are you okay? Honey, are you okay? What kind of job? What kind? (laughs) Any kind. Any kind. Julia... There is a lot of controversy around the campaign to get Riseboro the award. Uh, Why don't you fill us in? 
So the rhythms of Oscar nominations are typically quite choreographed. There's a set of films that set themselves up to be in contention and they're promoted in that way and they enlist publicists who specialize in awards nominations and there's a circuit and you go to a set of lunches and brunches and dinners and you sit down with a bunch of publications. Um, And there's actually a new book out um, called The Oscar Wars by Michael Schulman of The New Yorker, which Dane, I believe you're reviewing for The Atlantic. which goes into the fact that this, you know, the choreography has changed over the years. People have upset the rules. There have been different controversies. Is the Academy too old? Is their taste too square? Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein began to, uh, among his many other sins and effects on Hollywood, re- reinvented the award season by really scrapping aggressively and spending a lot of money to try to win awards for Miramax's films in the 90s. So, it changes and the Academy must police the rules. And Andrea Riseborough, this film made $30,000 when it first came out. It had almost no promotional juice at all. It was well-reviewed, but hardly anybody had heard of it. Um, and then in the couple weeks before nominations voting closed, uh, a lot of famous people in Hollywood began to post on their social media accounts, like, you got to check out Andrea Riseborough. Her performance is really incredible. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, just numerous people began touting this teeny, 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 tiny film. And it turned out that the wife of the director and the manager of Andrea Riseborough were kind of running this guerrilla campaign that was outside of the classic way that you would go about trying to win an Oscar for your film. They were hosting screenings. They were inviting uh, various people, and they were trying to get a word-of-mouth campaign going. The Academy, after the nomination happened, um, reviewed everything that was done, and it let the nomination stand. The Academy has uh, rescinded and withdrawn nominations on a couple of prior occasions, but Riseborough's in. She's, you know, they did not find anything so untoward that they decided to withdraw the nomination. But they said they would revisit social media policies and speak to a couple individual folks about their behavior, but they didn't find any concerted misbehavior. Now, again, this is arcane. And Steve, you mentioned in our prep that you read this whole controversy and we're like, this seems so stupid. I don't even understand why anybody would talk about it. So I mean, it's like, but where? That... how do you bite into a nothing burger? And like, I had this moment where suddenly I was like, a, talking to myself like a 50 year showbiz vet, which I'm definitely not. And I was like, this is nothing compared to what Harvey used to pull. Like, I fucking know. But I, it just seems like a lot of nothing. I mean, correct me if well, I'm wrong. I think the additional one, one piece of additional spin on the ball is that two of the actresses who were quote unquote expected to be nominated were Viola Davis and Danielle Deadweiler for their roles in Woman King and Till. Um, and Gina Prince Bythewood, the director of Woman King, wrote an article for Hollywood Reporter after the nominations, pointing out that this kind of social capital, lots of fancy, mostly white actresses touting the work of another. Uh, well-connected actress is not necessarily a toolkit that is available to yep. um, to black women in Hollywood, which is totally fair. However, there's also an interesting, like, th- it's sort of, is this movie an overdog? Is Andrea Riceboro an overdog? Because 
she's white and she has powerful friends? Or is this movie an underdog because it's like a teeny, 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 tiny movie with no budget and no viewers and just that was not selected by its producers and distributors to get the investment of the type of publicity that steers people towards awards. Like the people who made this movie didn't think they had an Oscar performance or they didn't have the budget to do anything about it. And, um, you know, this, the, the, in some ways, Riseborough has more power and clout. And in other ways, she has less. You know, the, the, full, the full bore official campaigns were, were run for many other actresses, some of whom got nominated and some of whom didn't. And so that's part of what's so interesting about the controversy is, and, and what's been made it interesting to follow from inside the Hollywood Awards bubble is that, that you know, there's, a, there's even some speculation that enough people within the Academy had the same response that you did, Steve, of like, what the hell? It's a bunch of people trying to get some people to see a movie they thought was good that nobody saw. Like, come on, like, all right, I'll check her out. Oh, wait, this performance is pretty good. Um, that that there are a few folks who think she could be a, a spoiler, splitting the difference between the, the kind of more anticipated winners of Michelle Yeoh and or Kate Blanchett. Um, and there's been a lot of victories in general for everything everywhere all at once during the um, Guild Awards over the last few weeks. So, you know, I don't think she's expected to win or anything, but it's, it is, I found it very interesting to watch the movie with all this controversy in mind and begin to think through like, what do we decide is an Oscar worthy performance and what don't we decide is an Oscar worthy performance and how much is that is affected by, you know, the power and money of the, the companies that decide to set their actors up for this type of attention. Cause the performance mm-hmm. is pretty interesting, I think. And I'm very curious, Dana, what you made of the movie and Andrea Riceboro's work in it. Yeah, I mean, I went in, Julia, knowing all of that, you know, buzz and, you know, arguably rather silly controversy about whether or not Riseborough should have been nominated. And so I think I went in thinking, thinking of the the movie from this somewhat calculating point of view of what are her chances of winning and what, you know, how is how are they positioning this performance? And then found myself just completely captivated by the movie and the story itself and was really surprised at how how good and how small and how accomplished and delicate this movie is. It's just not the kind of movie that gets certainly awards recognition, but that even gets made very much anymore. And so I think I watched it in just a state of melancholy appreciation for, you know, the the many years, decades when movies like this existed and there was room for them in the marketplace. I'm not saying they did well, you know, but they did launch a lot of people's careers and, this movie reminds me of, I mean, here's these are some titles that have come up in a lot of reviews of it, but they were all movies that I thought of while watching it. Tender Mercies, the Robert Duvall movie from the 80s, where he is, you know, a sort of down and out um, alcoholic in the country, sort of also repairing his life as she is in this movie. Also Crazy Heart, a movie that I loved from a few years ago, where Jeff Bridges is a an alcoholic country singer. There's this kind of and I want to go, I don't want to call it like hillbilly core or something tradition in movies. Winter's Bone is another movie that came to mm. mind, which launched Jennifer Lawrence's career. Um, you know, movies that take place in remote locations that are about the white working class that show people at, you know, sort of hitting bottom moments of their lives, but that don't have that inspirational arc that, a you know, an addiction drama can sometimes have. This movie does have moments of hope and I won't spoil by revealing what they are, but I mean, it goes to really, really dark places and not just in her performance but i think in the in the portrayal of small town life in a a depressed down and out town uh in all the supporting performances as well 
And I just thought it doesn't break new ground. There are other movies like it, but this kind of movie is starting to disappear from the landscape because it's not franchisable. It's not repeatable. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And, um, and, I just thought it was a beautiful film. It's shot on film, something else worth noting, which is a vanishingly rare thing to have happen in this in this day and age. Andrea Riseborough is just transcendently good. When the movie started, I thought, is this performance going to be too actressy? You know, she's an English woman. Is she going to be believable as this this West Texas single mother? And by two scenes into the movie, I just was yeah. completely sold. She's such a specific person. You know, she's yes. not playing a drunk, no. you know, or a single mother. She is a very specific odd, needy, lovable, just incandescent performance from her. I, I, it, would, it would be great to see her win the Oscar, honestly. Yeah. I think she, uh, she is a complete dark horse, but insofar as it might make more movies like this be able to be made, I would be all for it. Yeah, let me, let me just, uh, Dan, I mean, all I, all I can do is echo everything you said. I mean, that's almost identical to my response to the movie, which is, you know, it's a horrible aspect of the human condition that certainly has gotten has not gotten short shrift from film. You know, it's it's a genre convention. It, it is it is a genre prone to conventionality at this point. Uh, I thought the movie transcended that completely. Her, I love your use of the word delicate. There's something very delicate about both the film and her, as you say. This is an exceedingly fragile person who compensates by uh, partying large and, and living large and being large and being loud and intruding on strangers' space in public spaces when she's drunk. It's it's genuinely heartbreaking. It is not an actressy performance to my mind at all. It is an astonishingly human portrait. The one thing I will say, and I, I really recommend this movie and I would actually be quite overjoyed if she won. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm rooting for her precisely, but I do think she deserves whatever recognition she gets. But the one thing I'll say is that Julia, I feel like dramas like this can go go in only one of two directions and you're sort of sitting around waiting for them to go in, in one of the two. Like you, 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 and I'm not going to say which one it is to spoil it. And I do think this is a very, very good movie, but I, and it happens very late. But you're, 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 there's a fork in the road inevitably. You're either going to go to the grave or you're going to go, you're going to have mawkish redemption that sometimes is a little quick and a little hard to believe. I, I, I didn't think the movie entirely escaped that, but 95% of the movie escaped all of the traps of the convention and, um, and, uh, produced something unexpected and, and like verging on great. Yeah, I I thought the performance was really great and the movie was, it's just so jam-packed, like no face in it isn't an amazing actor. I mean, it's really a, a kind of murderer's row of, of talent. Um, we haven't mentioned that Stephen Root um, plays the partner of the Allison Janney character and she's incredible in it. As a recovery movie, I actually, I thought that Mark Maron's performance was good. I think Mark Maron's character is like manic pixie enabler man or something. Like he's, he's a little bit of a figment. And also in the story that that character tells about his life and what it is that might've sparked his interest in this damaged woman and trying to help her, like that narrative has its own damage and twistedness to it that the movie does not consider very seriously like the 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 plight of the person trying to help the alcoholic and the damage wreaked and the desire to help like all of those things are incredibly complicated and difficult um in stories of addiction and recovery and he he's 
he's a little bit of an instrument, I think, more than his own fully grounded self. And I don't think it's in the performance. I think it's in the, in the writing. Um, so I didn't, I didn't feel like all of the movie's twists and turns were fully considered and earned. The movie didn't feel as wise as her performance to me, but Mm. I do, I mean, my, my hope would be that you know, whatever the outcome. I mean, the, the the other thing we're saying is like, yes, this movie is an underdog because this type of movie is so seldom made and this type of performance breaks out so much less frequently. You know, on the other hand, the fact that the attention of Hollywood has also shifted in ways such that Gina Prince-Bythewood gets to make Woman King and that is financed and funded. And when it's financed and funded, the assumption is that Viola Davis is a serious awards contender and the machinery of promotion around that swings into effect and those changes are hard won and they're valuable in terms of the types of stories that get told. So it's not so, it's not so simple to just pour one out for the, the, you know, small white hillbilly core drama. But my hope is that everyone who thinks about this at all, which is granted probably a pretty small group of people, um, can see past whatever the controversy is to Rise Rose Talent because it really is, you, she plays both the person and the alcoholism, which are two different things. And she plays them at the same time. And it's just, it's really marvelous to watch. The movie's too Leslie. You can find it uh, online, multiple outlets, pay seven bucks, uh, watch it. I think we all say it's time very well spent. Shoot us an email if you have feelings about the controversy too. All right, moving on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. Well, seven years ago, Slate published the Black Film Canon. It was a list of 50 titles uh, after canvassing prominent black intellectual scholars, filmmakers, Ava DuVernay, Robert Townsend, uh, various others, came up with a list of 50. We're only seven years later, but Slate, in conjunction with NPR, has produced 
a refurbished and updated list of 75 titles for a very, very good reason. Here to explain the thinking behind it and as well as its various ins and outs, its titles, its inclusions and exclusions is Aisha Harris, an old and very, very good friend of this program and host now of our hated, our dreaded rival, the Pop Culture Happy Hour. Aisha, how could you? (laughs) Way to see Discord at the top of the conversation. I know. My goodness. Well, thanks for having me here anyway. <laughs> uh, no, congratulations on the, on the, it's a great seat uh, to occupy and you've done a great job. So it's, it's fabulous to have you back, but it's not puffery to say that the urgency of this list is almost self-explanatory, but you explain it very well along with Dan Coyce, your co-author. Go ahead and tell us why now, seven years later, you'd, you'd update and add to the list. Well, so Dan and I actually, I feel as though it was even maybe a few months after this was published back in 2016, where we were like, do we need to update this list? When are we going to update this list? Because we published it in the spring of 2016. And later that year, just a few months later, Moonlight would come out. It would kind of change the game, eventually win the Best Picture Oscar and break records while doing it. Um, And then, of course, you have Get Out come out even just less than a year after that. And since then, we've seen so much black filmmaking sort of flourish in these last seven years, whether it's um, Black Panther becoming this like blockbuster behemoth. You also have all of these other really smart and brilliant minds who have have, uh, cropped up, including Janixa Bravo, her film Zola is on here. Um, A lot of great documentaries like I Am Not Your Negro by Raul Peck. Um, It just seems like the perfect opportunity to sort of celebrate the fact that things have actually gotten a lot better in many ways for black filmmakers uh, in the last seven years. And then also to recognize that, you know, the first time around, we might have missed a few that should have been included before for various reasons. Um, So it was it was a great opportunity to kind of look back and see where we're at and also acknowledge that. Yes, while things have changed for the better, we're still having these conversations, a lot of these same conversations that we were having when the first list came out, including the fact that this year there were a lot of black performers who and and filmmakers, including Jordan Peele, um, who for Nope did not get any nominations at the Oscars this year. So it's, it's both very timely and also, I think, just a perfect encapsulation of where we've been and where we still need to go. Yeah, Aisha, I'm so glad you updated this list. And it, it really is true when you when you think about what started happening in the space of black cinema right after the first one was published that I mean, in in a list that can sometimes seem bleak in the in the stretches of time that pass in between, right? Like you have almost nothing from the 1950s. And that's not a fault of the list. It's because I assume that that's a time when there was very little going on in terms of, you know, black filmmakers being able to make anything that would get seen. Um, so given all of that, there's something it's almost cheering to see that there's there's suddenly a new influx of of material to talk about since the initial list. But something that really struck me reading through this list of 75 titles, I mean, even as somebody who is a professional film critic and who's been a cinephile and somebody who's trying to investigate film history, I don't know, since I was in my teens or something, I'm just amazed by how many of these I've not only not ever seen, but not ever heard of. And I know in a lot of cases, that's because these movies come with stories of why they weren't able to be seen. So, over and over again, I keep seeing notes in these entries, you know, this film never saw release in its initial, you know, after its initial creation. And this movie couldn't be seen for 40 years. And 
I wonder if you have any stories there about, you know, movies that came and surprised you because they have been so hard to see and so under the radar for so many decades. Oh, man. I mean, so many stories in, in this in this regard. And I look, I went to film school and I I concentrated a lot of my focus on black filmmaking when I was in film school. Um, and and so there were still some surprises. And I think that speaks to both the breadth of black filmmaking that has existed even before the 1990s. And it also speaks to how... Um, how difficult it can be to archive these things. And what's been great, especially in the last seven years, is that there have been all of these archivists and people who have been really focused on bringing these things to the fore. And so one of the films on our list, uh, and one of my personal favorites that we've added this year, um, this year, is the 1982 film Cane River, which was directed by Horace B. Jenkins. Um, and it was a movie that, when the first list came out, hadn't even really been seen by too many people. It originally had like one or two premieres in the U.S. back when in 1982. And then Horace B. Jenkins actually died shortly after it premiered. Um, and so it kind of fell by the wayside and went unseen for decades until around 2013, 2014. Um, it was a, a negative print of the film was discovered. And then it took several years for them to restore it. And then finally, like a month or two before the pandemic shut everything down, I was able to see it, it, it had a limited release and I was able to see it at BAM in New York um, and on the big screen. And it's this beautiful film, a romantic drama about a uh, college football star who decides he doesn't want to go to the NFL and returns home to his um hometown of Natchitoches, Louisiana, and he wants to write poetry and ride horses. <laughs> and he meets this woman uh, who is about to go to college and she's like ready to leave their small town. And they, it's just, it's a beautiful portrait of rural Louisiana and what it's like to uh, fall in love, but also have these really um, interesting conversations about race and and lineage and family history. And so it was great to be able to discover these films. And what we wanted, what Dan and I wanted with this was not just to say, like, oh, these are the, the 75 greatest films of all time. Like, the, there's always a problem with canonization and all those sorts of things. But I look at this list as sort of like a supplement to the National Film Registry or something in that sort of lineage where, like... Every movie has its own style, feel. These aren't necessarily all the best movies of all time. Some of them are shabbily made for various reasons, whether it's budget or just constrictions or whatever. Um, but they're important for because they are entertaining or because they're funny or because they say something really interesting or smart or they feel like a time capsule. Um, and and that, that's what these movies, I feel like, are like a good starting point for anyone who's trying to understand black filmmaking of the last 100 years. Can you talk a little bit about the process of making the list? I mean, I, I'm sure, first of all, anytime anybody makes a canon or a list, it's great to have another shot at it because there's no making a list without somebody pointing out something you left off the list that you think, oh, I should have put that on there. Um, but, you know, I, I remember from the first list what a what a thorough job uh, you did kind of pulling together the right people to start to seed the ideas, to bring in their expertise, to bring in their voices. Um were there any new things you did in revisiting the list in terms of who you consulted or how you thought about process or how you thought about what type of work merited inclusion? Yeah, I mean, we we pretty much stuck to a similar uh, methodology as we did the first time around, which was we reached out to a bunch of filmmakers, critics, and scholars that we felt would really have 
an interesting and strong opinion on the subject and asked them to send us their five favorite films of the last seven years in this case. And then also if they if they had any that they felt we strongly we should have included in the first round, um, they also threw those in. And that was another thing that I think was great about this list for both Dan and I is this, uh, is the discovery, is these movies, some of which we had never heard of that other people recommended. Um, and so, you know, Henry Louis Gates recommended Looking for Langston, the, a 1989 film uh, that is just it is it's hard to describe, but it is and it's also hard to view, which is another which is another issue. We were able to view it, um, but it's it's very hard to find online. It, it sometimes will play in festivals or retrospectives. But it's directed by the British filmmaker Isaac Julian, and it is a sort of ode to Langston Hughes. Um, but it's it's heavily focused on the queer aspect and how queer aspect of Langston Hughes and his life. And it has you know lots of actors and performers who it, it feels very 1980s, late 1980s. You could see I don't know if Madonna ever saw this, but I could feel like Vogue <laughs> in in that because you have a lot of men, beautiful black men, especially dressed in like Harlem Renaissance uh, outfits and whatnot. Um, and those were those were sort of the discoveries, movies that we might not have been able to see that I think were really fun to include. Um, and so getting this breadth of perspective and, and hearing um, what these meant to different uh, the different people that we reached out to, um, it's been really, really eye opening. And of course, like there were some, I, I think we, I can say that there were some movies that got so many votes uh, that it was, we knew they were going to Black Panther, Get Out. Um, so yeah, it was, it's, it's been really fun. <laughs> so I, you know, Aisha, I, as Dana reminds us quite r- rightly, every, every year, like list making is sort of the banal you know, obligatory task of the critic, you know, top 10, top this or whatever, canonization, you know, by scholars is is more complex and can be more inclusive or eccentric, but nonetheless, maybe somewhat problematic. But there's a great virtuous upside, I would think, and I'd love to hear you speak to it, is that once assembled, especially a list covering uh, this number of titles in this amount of time, itself begins to tell a story that's sort of made up of the sum of the parts, but is independent of any one of them in some sense. Like there's a larger narrative sweep here to the essentially history of black film in America, right? I mean, did that start to come home to you? Was that itself powerfully moving? Was it intellectually stimulating in a specific way? Did you get some sense, overall sense of what story the list itself might have been trying to tell you? Well, I think what the list told me both before and now in this new incarnation is that despite so many limitations and in in many cases, limited resources, there were so many ways and always have been so many ways that black filmmakers have been really stretching the uh, stretching the boundaries of what filmmaking could look like. And this is just like not even having to do necessarily with race. But another film that we added to our list um, is actually from 1968. So I was really happy to get some some 
movies from even before the 70s in here, um, new movies, Symbi- Symbio-Psycho-Taxiplasm Take One, <laughs> directed, by, <laughs> directed by William Greaves. And it is an experimental film, and it's like a, uh, we call it like a nesting doll sort of film, where he's making a, he's trying to audition some actors to perform in a film, and then he's also having other people audition, like other another film crew film that, and then another film crew document, the film crew documenting him. And it's just this really interesting exploration of artistry and and meta narrative and what it like how you tell these stories and it's about race but it's not and to be able to see that in the 60s even when there were even fewer resources and even more obstacles to to you have to deal with as a black filmmaker there were still so many creative ways that were uh, that they were able to tell stories. And I think so often we think of black filmmaking as like, oh, there's only one way to do it. Or um, <laughs> even when the sight and sound poll, this this past version came out, people were like, well, oh, now the list is woke, blah, blah, blah. And it's like uh, black filmmakers have been creative and been doing things on par with your, you know, your uh whoever you want to think of, like Scorsese's and whatever, for, since the beginning of time. Um, it's just that they're not acknowledged as such. So um, that was kind of what I took away from it, is that like there's so many ways to be a Black filmmaker, and I hope that this list really um, makes that clear, that these are all very different stories in many ways. Even though there are some common themes, there's just so many different ways that these stories are being told. Mm. All right, well, Aisha... It's just great to have you back, uh, if only, you know, briefly in the fold. But um, Aisha Harris is a host of the uh, NPR podcast, uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour. She's a culture writer and thinker extraordinaire. And it's just great to have you back, Aisha. With a book coming out, Steve. You're falling down on your job with a book coming out this year. (laughs) Aisha, can, can you give us a title and a pub date, please? Yes, yes. Uh, yes, I have a book coming out. It's called Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. It's a collection of pop culture, personal and critical essays. And it's out June 13th uh, via Harper One. So go get it. Pre-order it. Yay. Okay. <laughs> okay. First thing, awesome title. Thank you. And sec- <laughs> second thing, please come back at the beginning of June and talk about the book. We'd love it. I would love that. Thank you all. <laughs> All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you? Uh, what do you got, Steve? I have a very you endorsement this week. I feel like this is this is an article you're <laughs> oh, really going to like, and that I can I can imagine you endorsing it. In fact, I suspected when I chose it for my endorsement this week that we might double up, and and it might have been the thing that both of us chose. Um, so we'll see if it is. This is an article oh, by by former Slatester, current New Yorker writer, and friend of Just the podcast Nathan Heller. Did you? Is that what you were going to endorse? It's called the, the end of the English of major. Victory. Of course, <laughs> the Nathan Heller death of the English, which we have to discuss. By the way, ah, all right. Well, you keep talking. I'm going to rummage. All right. While you rummage, maybe you'll have something to say yourself about this this article and what makes it special. I mean, Nathan Heller is not the first to observe, as he does in this this piece, the end of the English major, that the humanities are you know going begging in in American academia. But this is just a really well reported and fully thought through um, examination of that. It's going to be in the March sixth print edition of the New Yorker, but it's online now. And in order to report this, Nathan traveled all around. He went to Harvard, but he also went to Arizona State and UC Berkeley and all over over the country, um, you know, schools of, of different sorts, public and private, 
to talk about why the humanities are um, are so starved right now for for funding and why so few students want to study the humanities, including students who you know identify as as readers and writers who he interviews a lot of, and he just goes way beyond the usual level of of hand wringing that you often hear in coverage of academic issues to really talk about how that culture has changed and how our con- conception of what higher education is has changed. So there is a lot of sadness and wistfulness there, but you know there's also some some really hard thinking about what it means to um, to think about human history and human culture at, at a higher education level in 2023. And I couldn't recommend it more. It's called The End of the English Major by Nathan Heller in The New Yorker. <sighs> Damn you, Dana Stevens. Damn you. Um, but yeah, no, it's amazing. It's a it's it, it's just a terrific piece in that it's reported and not just sort of spinning out from his own navel or whatever. It's just, it's, it's really a, it's a great piece of journalism. Julia, what do you have? All right. My endorsement this week is uh, about a different facet of the humanities and human endeavor. It is the Twitter account slash Instagram account, art, but make it sports. Do you guys follow this? <laughs> nope. Uh, never heard of I it. I love it already, but no. Okay. They, they handle is at art, but sports and essentially uh, quite frequently, this account finds a live action sports photograph capturing the human form in various states of motion, agony, ecstasy, delight, angst, theatrical diving, and then finds the perfect precedent in art history and pairs the two in like glorious concert. And, um, here, here, wait, I almost want to screen share it for you guys so you can see it. Let me see if I can do that. So you just get these glorious tableaus <laughs> of like incredible pairing of the the physique of the modern athlete and the gesture of the mannerist painting. Um, you've got St. Sebastian by Titian paired with, um, you know, the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> you've got... <laughs> Caravaggio uh, and the Blazers. You've got just kind of incredible, an incredible eye. And the account notes that it's all it's all done by the human eye. That it, there's not some kind of like Google image search formula going on here, which makes it all the more remarkable. So anyway, it's a great follow. It's been livening up my Twitter feed. Strong, strong recommend. Oh, yeah, this person has an incredible eye. The compositions they're finding are almost exactly duplicated in some kind of modern sports photo. That's insane. Oh, my God. That's genius. Uh, All right. Insta follow. Okay, so um, I, on the fly, had to come up with with an endorsement, but it wasn't that hard. There was a song, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, I'd never heard before um, that was part of the uh, soundtrack of Two Leslie. It was called... uh, are You Sure by Willie Nelson. I was like, damn. And I love, among the things I loved about the movie is it sort of appropriately reveres Willie Nelson, right? With a, you know, it depicts his status as as the unifying godhead of the state of Texas. Like, like everybody knows to worship and they do it sincerely, right? From the standpoint of utter belief, um, Willie Nelson and the man deserves it and more, but um, there's a song called uh, "Are You Sure" that plays, and and in fact, it's a great moment in the movie. I won't spoil it. It's a it's a small moment, but it's just one of the amazing grace notes. Is her reaction when she hears it coming on in the bar, and um, anyway, 
I tracked it down, and there are a couple different versions of it. And one of them comes from Willie Nelson, colon, the Demos Project. And this one's actually on volume one. These are your friends, but are they real friends? Do they love you as much as me? Are you sure this is where you want to be? What's better, A, than a Willie Nelson song you didn't know that turns out probably to be a classic or if not should be? But secondly, then a bunch of Willie Nelson demos from every point apparently in his career. I mean, volume one is early, so it's just like golden, golden period Willie Nelson, like him doing crazy as a demo. I mean, the guy is just like... I, I, I mean, I know I'm just sort of regurgitating Jody Rosen's Amazing Times magazine article, but I mean, think about how few figures there there are who legitimately unite every American, like literally, I mean, I think virtually universally, right? Like pride in the American project, or at least you can kind of say like, yeah, we, like we kind of did this, right? Like, you know, I mean, it, it, it just, I love the guy. I love hearing him just with a guitar trying to make it in the world, singing some of these great songs before he, he'd done that. So check it out, Willie Nelson, The Demos Project. And I love the song, Are You Sure? I just think that's a great, great tune. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. It was fun. Yeah, really fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.